After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. everyone. I'm Raghu, and I'm back with Mind Rolling. And I'm back with my friend Vincent Horn. Hi, Vincent. Hey, good to be here. He's my only friend in Asheville, where I live. <laughs> yeah, that seems true. <laughs> I've met some of your other friends. <laughs> I think that's probably not true. But <laughs> well, my only podcast friend, let's yeah, put it that way. That's, that, that's probably so true. So it's great, because as you all know out there, I usually have to, I do Skype stuff with everybody. Uh, because they're all out of town, and it's you know the the best way for me to to get with them because I like to see them when I talk to them, right? Yeah, it's nice. And so in this case, I've got uh, I've got captured company. Yeah, it's so kind of a pilgrimage to get out to your place, even <laughs> from Asheville. Oh, really? A little bit. Yeah, it's true. That's what I like about it. Yeah. You know? uh, so I was just on. So Vince has. Uh, a wonderful platform called Buddhist Geeks, and uh, and he's been doing that for a number of years. And it's, uh, of course, he's got a wonderful podcast. Go to BuddhistGeeks.com and check it out. And in fact, uh, just a week or two ago, I was on your podcast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was we had a lot of fun. We did it in a, <laughs> in a tea house. It was really cool. A little so, loud at times. Yeah. It worked out, though. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we actually talked about, because, uh, you're doing this wonderful series called, uh, Psychedelics and Buddhism. Can you tell, so now I got you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. What, what is the, um, what's your intention here with, uh, with this whole series, Buddhism and Psychedelics? Yeah, so... Um, a couple years ago, I had uh, Dr. Roland Griffiths on Buddhist Geeks, who's the lead researcher at Johns Hopkins, and he's been the guy doing all the psilocybin research, mm. all these different kinds of uh, projects, and um, a, a mutual friend of ours uh, connected us, and they were doing a study on um, advanced meditators using psilocybin for the first time. So people that have been done, doing a lot of meditation and had never had a psychedelic um, were then coming in and doing psychedelics, and they were sort of seeing, you know, how how what was their experience like? How did it stack up to like their meditation background and their experience going on retreats? And so um, when I talked to him, I decided to out myself as being part of that category as well. I had you know done a lot of meditation, never done any psychedelics, and then I got curious and tried psilocybin and did it a number of times after that. And so I sort of shared my personal story and he encouraged me to do that. Um, and it was kind of like, you know, coming out of the closet in a certain <laughs> way. Um, and mm. so that just got me thinking about um, how that conversation, although it's definitely started to happen, like zigzag zen, um, Alan, uh, do you know Alan? No, Alan Badenier. I know Zigzag. Yeah, I I don't know how to say his last name, so I apologize, Alan. But um, Zigzag Zen was like the only thing written about Buddhism and psychedelics for Mm. like years, and it seemed like that conversation was starting to like open up a little bit more. And so I thought it would be cool to kind of help continue to have that conversation about Buddhism and meditation and psychedelics and kind of how do those things interface or do they? Um, And so my intention was really to explore 
sort of the nuanced middle ground. Like I, I intentionally wanted to leave out any of the voices that said, you know, psychedelics are always bad and can never um, have anything to do with Buddhist practice and psychedelics are always good and everyone and every should do them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I sort of said, I want to mm. leave out both of those perspectives mm. um, and just focus on the, on what I call the tolerant Buddhists, um, the people <laughs> that are kind of like open to it, uh, um, but not necessarily convinced it was a good, that they could mix and the psychedelic Buddhists and the people that thought there's some sort mm. of uh, interface there. Um, so that was the purpose is to sort of talk to those people in those camps yeah. and sort of explore the middle and explore the nuance. Yeah. Okay. I think there's a great uh, brand possible here for you to create, or we can both create it. <laughs> Tolerantbuddhists.com. <laughs> it's okay. like, is that, that should be an oxymoron. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's but it's strangely not. not. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> We're terrible. Um, so wait, so you had, so tell me your personal experience and, and where there's parallels between the psychedelic experience and Buddhist meditative experience. Well, um, or none, whatever. I, I found there were parallels, uh, and then things that were different too. Um, so I did psilocybin on my, I think it was my 30th birthday. Mm. So about four years ago. And I did it with a group of friends, um, many of whom had done it before, and all of whom were meditators. Oh, so it, it was a significant group then, certainly. Yeah, there were like five or six of us, wow. I think. And we sort of treated it like like we would uh, a retreat or a day-long practice session. We sort of had a structure where we talked about why we were there and why we wanted to do this, and... We then took the psilocybin, you know, the chocolate truffles or whatever, and, <laughs> and then we sat, sat together for some time until, you know, it started to come on. Talk about Leary and Alpert's set and setting. Yeah. We followed that one. Yeah, yeah. And we, wow. we, we had the benefit of their, of their uh, experience mm. to kind of lean on. <laughs> mm. um, and yeah, it was, it was remarkably similar to me to like retreat experience where, except for much a much faster version mm. where it felt like the same kind of, um, you know, initial excitement and focus and clarity and then sort of mer you know, morphing into some discomfort and confusion and then getting really open and blissful and clear. And then it started to dissolve and, you know, it's like sort of seeing my ego dying and, mm. you know, kind of like getting scared and <laughs> the whole, it was like the whole same and then eventually that sort of opened it up into kind of clear, open awareness type space. And it was like the same cycles of consciousness and meditation, but kind of going through the right. psilocybin experience. And that's what I found remarkably similar. Except, of course, if you just did it through a, a meditative retreat, that would happen over 10 days, two weeks, right? The, those That sequence. Yeah, it was a little... This it putting was it all into a few hours. Yeah, it was. It was like a little bit faster and a little bit more trippy, for lack of a better term. <laughs> it's like, and I hadn't... I'd never experienced um, meditating the same kind of visual effects. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I know some people do experience mm -hmm. weird visual effects when they practice, um, but I usually don't. And so that was really fascinating, you know, to see kind of the way that it altered visual perception. And um, and I did it like four times over the course of the next month, um, sort of with this group, with the same uh, more or Basically, less, yeah. yeah, more or less. Like some people would come and go, mm. um, and every time I did a little bit higher dose, so I was kind of doing a mm -hmm. sort of uh, st also, and this was the really <laughs> fucked up part of this is I had I was getting ready to host the Buddhist Geeks Conference. Uh, in a month. So the month leading up to the conference, I was <laughs> doing these more and more bigger oh. doses. And uh, the last one I did was like a week before the conference. And during that one, I had the proverbial like bad trip oh. and like just had a total panic attack where it felt like I was dying. Mm. Um, I was out on a walk with my friend and suddenly like the panic just sort of hit me. And I I just lay down on the ground and, and, and went through this whole sort of simulated death experience. Mm, wow. And 
what was so interesting about that was that I was trying to use the meditative tools I'd learned to like kind of deal with it. And the experience wouldn't allow me to deal with it. It was like I couldn't note my way out of the experience or notice. I couldn't disembed, you know, mm-hmm. from it. It was like it, it, sub, it, it, it totally subsumed me. Um, and so it really felt like, you know, a kind of ego death that I, unlike anything I had experienced before. And, and after that, I, I sort of lost touch with consensual reality for a couple, a few hours after that. I, I really went mad um, for a little while. And then it, my sanity started to like recoagulate and then I'd go mad again. For a few days, I was kind of coming in and out of wow. um, consensual re- like reality. And it really was like just like totally worthless. And this conference was coming up, you know, like three oh, days. So it was really, it was really kind of scary. I almost went to the hospital at one point, you know, to get sedatives or something, mm. um, but was concerned, you know, that they were going to like, <laughs> going to throw me in the loony bin. Oh, shit. <laughs> Although I was in Boulder, so I probably shouldn't have worried that much. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, another, you know, another loony guy, psychedelic yeah. tripper. Yeah. Um, but I learned so much from that last one in particular, like the, all the ones before that were all like mystical, blissful, mm. unitive you know, earth connecting experiences, mm-hmm. but there was really the last one where I lost my shit, <laughs> where I really learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it took like several months to, to realize that. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. and everybody out there, of course, um, this is not an advertisement or commercial for, uh, doing psychedelic obviously (laughs) and this is proof of it okay do Um, you want to lose your mind yeah (laughs) possibly which is a good thing in the end and of course it's but um generally what you're forced into in my experience with this is surrender you just uh, you get to the point where you just have to absolutely okay it's okay you know whatever it is madness non-madness you know whatever it is uh, it's you you connect with that deeper part of yourself that allows the mind part to do its spin out basically so uh, and sometimes it does take a long time to integrate but uh certainly anybody doing anything like this has to be in that set and setting framework and with people who love you Mm. and that love generally will pull you through I had a situation once where I I also took a very intense dose of acid, okay, which is far more intense than um, psilocybin, or can be, depending Mm -hmm. on the dosage. And uh, and I was with a few friends, and everything was fine. I was dying until I said to my friend, you think we're we're okay? (laughs) And this schmuck (laughs) said to me, I don't know. That was it. I went off the deep end after that, you know, for a while. I ended up at a crazy ass nightclub at a Fugs concert. I don't know people out there. You have to be a little bit more aged to know Thule Kupferberg and Ed Sanders, who were poets in in New York City, who put this band, the Fugs, together. They they were wild. I mean, completely wild. They were so wild. They brought me out of this crazy ass you know mind warp that i went into inter- while i was trying to avoid surrendering in that moment you know? no so mm. yeah this is cautionary tale as much as anything else right Maybe. yeah totally totally mm. but um but the work that is being done back to the original thing of you having that guy on i can't remember his name who's doing that john stuff yeah john uh, roland griffith yeah and uh, roshi joan halifax told me she's been involved also and there's tremendously great work around PTSD, around addiction, around death and dying uh, that is being done with, uh, with psilocybin and also MDMA, which Rick Doblin, who I had on, on a podcast, uh, we talked about, and he's done tremendous work around that. It is really effective, so effective that the government, pre, pre this current government, you know, I mean... The current, you know, attorney general says that marijuana is more evil than heroin or some crazy ass shit. I mean, this maniac. Um, Sorry about that, (laughs) folks. If anyone thinks Jeff Sessions is great, then, you know, 
I'll learn to live with that. Um, but uh, so, but many many uh, universities like Johns Hopkins, not many, but a number of them have grant have been granted uh, license to be able to experiment with uh, with particularly, I think, more psilocybin, but somewhat also uh, MDMA. And uh, they're proving this out, that it is helping, you know, especially people, uh, soldiers coming back uh, who have tremendous PTSD and so on, ad- addiction and, and death and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, it is very efficacious, and, and, I th- and I'm totally behind uh, more of this kind of work, you know. And I think what you're doing with psychedelics and, and, and Buddhism or Buddhist meditation, I think, is a is a great, great parallel. And the fact that you experimented with it yourself and, and are telling this story is, is wonderful. Thank Very you. Very good for you. Um, which brings me to another subject here. Uh, just, I, even though I come from the uh, bhakti tradition, mm-hmm. of course, we were, as many of you out there have heard this podcast, so you know that um, Maharaji... Neem Karoli Baba, uh, when we were in India, he didn't tell us to do anything, but he would say funny things like, are you going to the course? In Hindi, he'd say, but in English, you go, course? You're going to the course? Meaning Vipassana courses, which were Buddhist meditation courses, which, as uh, you'll remember, Jack Cornfield uh, and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein brought back from the East, Vipassana they, uh, to me, they have done more single-handedly or triple-handedly for people getting basic grounding practice than anybody in this country, Uh, any teacher that's come here. I mean, I really feel that about them. And uh, you can check them out if anybody's just listening to this podcast for the first time. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and and they all have wonderful podcasts. Uh, some extemporaneous, like this thing we're doing now, Vince and I, and some actual uh, talks that they've given that we wrap up into podcasts. Um, so uh, one of the the big bywords in, in the West, certainly, and for a long time, pretty much along the, uh, the same theme as, quote-unquote, new, the new age, right, I mean, Krishnadas and I, uh, by the way, started a record company, Triloka Records, in the 90s, right? We started it basically to to offer an alternative to new age music, okay? That, <laughs> so mm. we had a, so we were doing really substantial uh, world music, you know, interspersed with pop and, and stuff like that. Um, and so the other big thing, which is still a huge thing, and it's a big seller in the book market is, quote-unquote, self-help. And so there was some stuff that I read uh, in in my wonderful, uh, what is this one? Tricycle, which is a great uh, magazine, by the way. Uh, here, so here's, here's the opening quote uh, from an article by Brett Ryder. Uh, actually, it's not Brett Ryder. Who is this? Alex Caring Label, is, who's, the, Lobel, who's the associate editor. Even if we wouldn't be caught dead in the self-help section of the bookstore, that's me, The truth of the matter is that we're all self-help disciples. We have a habit of endlessly evaluating everything from our jobs to our hobbies to our relationships with one self-serving question in mind. How can I be better? How can I do better? Etc. Right? How true is that? I mean, uh, the fact that uh, we wake up in the morning with the I-me-mind syndrome you know, goes a long way to support everything that he's saying here. Um, uh, the other th- part of this, which I'd love th- for you to comment on, is the part that um, we all feel like there's a self and we're going to control through ourselves, through willpower, uh, what it is that uh, it, our evolvement as human beings Um like he quotes, like the little alien pulling the levers, 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 levers inside the cockpit of a human body. That kind of self, according to Buddhist philosophy, does not exist. Buddhism then can teach us what the self in self-help is and isn't. 
So in your experience, yeah, talk about how, I mean, you know, we all came up with this idea and we are from the West and it's all about being the doer. So how do we reconcile this with the, the reality of of, um, of no self? And in this case, I don't even get into the tremendous philosoph- philosophical thing about no self versus soul and all of that, but more no em- the empty of self-interest self. So how do we uh, how do we attack this when we're brought up in such a tremendous um, uh, vacuum of of the reality of uh, letting go? We are control freaks. Mm. Well, I don't know where this is going to go, but um, it can go anywhere. That's the beauty of what we're doing. Yeah? <laughs> One thing I didn't share when we were talking earlier about the psychedelic experience yeah. is, uh, and you were talking about surrender, um, which was very much how I was trying to orient to that whole process, you know, for the days that I was kind of like losing my mind and coming to and losing my mind. I was like, okay, I do need to surrender what do you mean? to this process. Tell us losing the mind. Uh, meaning I I stopped being able to know conceptually who I was and what was happening but in a way that I couldn't interact normally. Not like I see that all concepts are empty and that the self is a construct, but like I've lost touch with the ability to even navigate this reality at all. Mm. Um, like total, totally confused and just like not in the same reality as other people. Your wife must have loved you. Oh man, she, uh, she scared the shit out of her. <laughs> and she loved Jeez. me a lot. Um, oh yeah, you know she she was really you know she really supported oh, me quite a bit. Because that's all that's the antidote. By the way, everybody yeah. out there, as long as you're with someone who loves you or is a loving being, doesn't have to be a I love you kind of thing. Uh, you're okay. You can let go. You're you can it's losing contact with your mind is okay if <laughs> there's enough love. So hmm. remember that whenever you anybody decides to embark on a journey like hmm. this. What was really strange, though, in terms of like the turning point for me and being able to like function well enough to show up at the conference and host it, which I did a so-so job at, <laughs> but um, one of my colleagues and friends, uh, after about four days of this, I was really starting to get scared. I'm not going to be able to host this thing. I'm not going to mm. be able to function. And she said to me, um, you know, you could just decide to stop and just kind of decide to get out of this. And it sort of hadn't occurred to me that that could be possible. And so I tried. I I said, okay, I'm done with this and I'm going to just like come back. And almost immediately I felt my sort of normal thinking mind start to Uh re-coalesce. And so it was oddly enough, it was it was a kind of movement of will or uh, determination to 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 move out of this state. Mm, interesting. That allowed it to, at least in retrospect, how I understand it, that that was a pivotal thing for me. So I it made me wonder, like, is there are there healthy forms of will or choice or self, you know, kind of action? And are there are there potentially unhelpful or unhealthy ways to surrender? Because because I I realized looking back that I I was surrendering, but I also felt kind of victimized by the experience. Like, mm. um, and so it, to me, it, it, that really brought up a strange paradox. Because I all I've done is the sort of selflessness Buddhist practice and sort of see that this self is a construct and it's you know it's kind of, it's kind of images appearing and feelings and like all these kind of things that come together like a mirage that seem like me and but really they're made up of all these component you know sensory experiences and they're not there's not like a real thing there yeah um but strangely still um there's some sort of power in in like intention and volition and and choice um for lack of a better term Mm. So I don't actually know how to reconcile that. <laughs> um, and I, but I do get what you're saying about the self-help part of, mm-hmm. you know, people kind of being like constantly obsessed with improving themselves and, right. and mm-hmm. thinking that there is a sort of solid like thing in there that, can do that they can fix. Yeah. And, 
I mean, that seems, you know, like that's a really sad situation, I think, when we get stuck in that loop. You know, this reminds me of something, and I have brought this up uh, on Mind Rolling before. Um, It's a a little bit of a story. Uh, It's just apropos for what we're talking about exactly. Uh, We were in India with Neem Karoli Baba and Ramdas. We were all hanging with Maharaji in a house in Lahabad. And he he said to Maharaji, is it not true that karma, action, and grace are the same? Okay. And Maharaji said, that is not something I can talk about in public. He didn't say it like that. This is our rational. He went, night, no talk about that. You know, whatever, whatever he would say. And Ramdas went away and thought, hmm, that's interesting. And then later, he got a message from some, one of the Indian devo- devotees saying, Maharaji told me to tell you, Ramdas, you and I understand each other very well. And Ramdas then thought, oh, okay, I get it. They are the same. There's no rational way of understanding that. You cannot put that into a thing where you can intellectually understand how they are the same whatsoever. One day, not too many years ago, I was with uh, uh, this uh, our Indian mother, whose name is Siddhima, and uh, who had been with Maharaji forever as a saint in her own right. And I, I told her this story. And I said, Ma, so w- what is the reality here? She said, it is true. They are one. But you cannot understand that. So you need to act as if they are not and do what you need to do and take action as if that action is, is, will have the results that you are looking for. And that, to me, was a fantastic explanation of what we're talking about now. Mm. And and certainly what you did, you took that action in that moment, and it and it resulted in you know a breakthrough, so that you you reassembled the pieces. On another level, it was all written <laughs> that this was going to happen, and that you had the grace from within Buddha mind, whatever you know, however it is that we all have that something inside that is guiding us, and uh, and and that. Uh, created the situation where you was preordained, preordained that you would take that action. Yeah, does so that make any sense? It 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 sort of does. In, in that, it feels like there's a deep paradox. Yes, going on. Yeah, and even when I think about you know the practice of surrender, you know, which for me is kind of like having the intention to let go and relax into whatever's there. You know that that intention and that like the the effort that it takes to let go. Mm. You know, sometimes that th- there is an effort uh, required. It seems like to me, yeah, to do that. And then other times, maybe it's like I get stung by a bee. You know, we talked about yeah, getting right. stung by yeah. yellow jackets, yeah. and it didn't feel like there's any choice. Like I just yeah, no, you run your <laughs> ass down that street <laughs> screaming, yeah, and then no. almost you know pass out and yeah, go right. oh, let go. Yeah. Um, so. That's 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 interesting. And I, I wonder if, you know, what we're calling self, you know, it's like we're somehow connecting self with this idea of the one who does things or the one who has intentions. And from the Buddhist meditative standpoint, in you know, and from the from the Jack and Joseph and Sharon and that sort of tradition, you know, intention is just one of the aggregates of experience, it's one of the aspects of experience. That like come that is coming and going, mm-hmm. and so you know the practices I've done there were really about noticing and almost kind of being aware of intention as something that kind of ebbs and flows in mm-hmm. experience and not identifying like intention is not me or not mine. Right. Um, yeah, with what we are truly made up with, which we can't name really. Every different tradition tries to name, and consciousness may be a, a good name, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it, it certainly arises from there. Um, there's another quote from this uh, article, which I love. Um, While much of the self-help literature 
limits itself to providing a combination of information and techniques. Buddhism aims to generate insight. I think this is a key thing. Particularly into the status of the self with the aim of ridding us of the selfish desires that often spur our quest for betterment <laughs> in the first place. And I think that that's, that's just a key right there and then you know, to really the efficacy of, of, of Buddhist practice. Because um, once that starts to happen and you stop thinking about yourself all the time and you start thinking about somebody around you and, and then you expand that out with, in, into, you know, like metta practice. Mm, or karma yoga. And karma yoga. Then, then you really are putting, you know, putting yourself out to make changes. You've made a change inside yourself that now mm. is going to affect Mm. Uh, many many people so i think that that you know that's a beautiful thing right there when when we when you were on buddhist geeks you used the term self cherishing yeah and i love i was i've been thinking about that term and and why that's so interesting cuz it's like it doesn't it doesn't um it doesn't assume that there isn't a self it just sort of says that the problem is like sort of cherishing self you know, or having like this kind of like too much love for the self, you know, a certain kind of love yeah. that's like unhealthy or right. attached well, attachment based, yeah. you know, kind of love. Cherishing the illusory yes. self that we all identify with. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's a, a big problem. Um, oh, here's a funny Well, hold thing. on. Is it illusory? The illusory self? Yeah. What do you mean by the illusory self? That which we identify as the I. Okay. This is all Ramana Maharshi. By the way, yeah. I just uh, I, <laughs> this is really great. <laughs> Yesterday, <laughs> I did a podcast with a man in India who wrote uh, a book that is like been the definitive Ramana Maharshi. You know Ramana Maharshi. Oh, which, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. an Advaitist, uh, you know, so very similar to Buddhist thought. Um, Hardcore. Yeah. And um, so we had this fantastic uh, conversation and uh, he knew so many great stories and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, the I, the eradication of the I was a major thing of you keep asking, well, who am I? Who am I? Yeah. Who is that I? You know, the self-inquiry thing. So I think that's a, a uh, one of the most respectable practices in the Advaita tradition. Or even, and to me, this is such a parallel with Buddhism, to practice that. Uh, so that that illusory I is that's what I mean by the illusory I, the identification with yeah. that which is just a set of aggregates that we develop over a lifetime uh, to identify ourselves. Okay, so I, so I'm I mean I'm with you, and at the same time I, I'm sort of remembering back to this contemplative Hinduism class I took at Naropa. Oh. And uh, the teacher's name was Sri Devi Bringi. Hmm. Um, and um, she was awesome. She was a great teacher. And one time, she said, there's one thing that I remember when she was talking about Advaita Vedanta, and she was talking about these different sort of Indian spiritual approaches. And she's, she was talking about Vedanta and Tantra as hmm. two kind of general paths. And hmm. she said the main difference from her point of view was Vedanta was the neti neti, you know, not mm -hmm, this, not mm -hmm, this, mm -hmm. not this, not this, not until you go, you know, till till there's nothing left, yeah. you know, to identify with. And then she said, but the tantric path is, I am this too, this too, this too, this too, yeah. this yeah. too. And she she did she said they led to the, the same, same kind path. of yeah. non non conceptual realization, mm. but that the way that they got there was like the opposite. opposite yeah. And so I wonder, you know, is that, does that seem related in some way, you know, to to what we're talking about? Is is there a way to kind of, you know, include? Because I've done the neti neti thing, like, and and I find now more helpful to sort of try to include more in my self concept, yeah. like to, to 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 expand it, you know, so that it's not just so small and self centered, but it's it's like more inclusive and, you know, um, like mm -hmm. includes everything. Yeah. I would say, in my own experience, the neti neti path, um, you get so caught in your mind with that stuff. Hmm. I think it's a very difficult thing. Hmm. I think very difficult. I think the Advaita path, period, is more difficult. Hmm. 
because we are so attached to knowing, quote unquote. I mean, so it's very difficult. The path of Tantra, of just merging and absorbing and um, and going through, it's basically what bhakti is, right? I was going to ask, like, is this is is that sort of like Maharaji? Was that was that sort of the way he the way he was? Or no, the... he was completely Advait. Oh, really? In fact, uh, huh. when you walked into the temple, it's no longer there because they changed the the entrance and all that. It was called the Shri 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 Hanu, Neem Karoli Baba Hanuman Advait, something like that. Krishnas remembers it better than I. Non-dual mm. ashram. Uh, you know, non-dual Hanuman? A non-dual Neem Karoli Baba? I mean, it was, it's really pretty far out. Yeah. No, this was a being that was not living in, in duality, period. And what state is that once you get there? It's love. There isn't anything else. It's a shitty word because it doesn't really say what it is, but but uh, but the but the actual uh, tradition is you are it's subject object. Okay, you have you have a guru. You are it's it, the grace of the guru. You are worshiping the guru. You are worshiping Hanuman, Christ, whatever, whoever it may be, and ultimately that evaporates once as Ramana Maharshi who we were just talking about one of his most famous saying is, sayings is God Guru and self are one mm. and that's where you eventually get to so you know that they say is the easy path now in the age that we're in of destruction Kali Yuga right the Hindus say so uh, yeah I, I think the path of uh, Tantra is uh, easier isn't the right word, but I think it's uh, with us in the West being so addicted to our minds. I mean, uh, that's why Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, is so the the crystal clarity of the expression of what reality is is so phenomenal. I mean, I'm so attracted by it. I mean, it's the only, not the only, but pretty much. That's what I like to read in my leisure time, which I don't get much of because of doing these podcasts and <laughs> about people's books and stuff. You know, I have to read their books. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I do um, appreciate the, the quicksand that that can put you in because it is so entrancing, the crystal clarity of that. Mm. And that's why I actually appreciate how Maharaji, he had us get, without telling us to do anything, it just happened, but he had, we had a real grounding in Buddhist meditation, period. Mm. And he even, you know, he, like the, the, the biggest praise he gave to other quote-unquote uh, gurus, saints, enlightened beings, whatever, really were the Tibetans, as, as wild as it is. I mean, one day he, I was going to, Oh, this is a real diversion, Vince. I don't know. It's I, okay. I'm I'm, I'm following. I don't I know think. if I told you this before, <laughs> but I went. I went. Uh, I was living high in the Himalayas, doing a meditation thing. Was going to be with Manindra, who was a great oh, uh, yeah. Buddhist teacher, who was going to come, and he couldn't come at the last minute. And we were all up there, me, Ram Das, Krishna, and others. And I went. I had uh, my passport needed to be renewed, so I stopped by Kenchi on the way where Maharaji was, and you know he. He uh, just saw me for a few minutes, and I just wanted the blessing to go on down to Delhi and get my passport. And he said, "Did you you just had a meeting with a Tibetan Lama, Darshan?" I go, "No, I never met a Tibetan in my life." I know. You mean Munindra, who was going to teach? Nay, Tibet Lama. You didn't. You had meet with him for half an hour. He gave you Tibetan teachings. I go, "No." Maharaji, I never, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he said, ciao. And off I went down to Delhi. <laughs> the timeline was <laughs> was screwy maybe, huh? Yeah, the timeline was <laughs> screwier than hell. And I go down there and I went to get my passport at the Canadian, I'm Canadian, the high commissioner's house. And I had heard they were letting Tibetans into Canada. And I, I said to him, is it true they're letting Tibetans into Canada? And he said, yeah, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and he just... 
looked behind, and out a door came a retinue of monks with Kalu Rinpoche at the head of it. Kalu Rinpoche was one of the greatest Tibetan lamas of the last century, okay? I flipped out. Talk about, I, I had, like I had taken a drug, you know, how could he... I, I, first of all, I'm with this incredible being. Secondly, how do you know, how do you know, you know all that stuff? You know, mind shatter. And then we went and had this incredible lunch. He sat across from me. I went at at one point. Some Canadian guys said, "Oh, we're going to interview him. Do you want to come along with us?" I said, "Sure." We went into a small room. These two guys, me and uh, the interpreter and and Kalu Rinpoche, and he was bored shitless talking to these guys because he wouldn't even look at them. They were asking him stupid questions about Christianity. I don't know anything about Christianity. And then they said to me, well, why don't you talk to him? And as soon as they did that, he sat straight up in his chair and contacted me like a laser, and I asked him questions about meditation. And I had been in the mountains. It's so good meditating, and I had, you know, in this spacious atmosphere but now i'm in the city and i can't handle it you know and i can't keep my focus or anything and he said no you don't i said do you have to be in a in a cave you know not a cave but in the country whatever and he said no you must be like the seven siddhas of india who all became realized through work one was a weaver one was a potter etc etc and he gave me teachings like that for about a half an hour Hmm. and i walked out i was stoned like on acid for about a week after that okay because it was just you know it was it was beyond the beyond Hmm. so um these kinds of things you know that happen in in one's life that make up the the fabric of connecting you to who you really are you know uh it's like you're it's very much it was similar to your i didn't take a drug but i took a drug mm. and similar to what happened to you where there was this mind shattering that's basically what happened to you in my eyes and mm-hmm. you know that's that's what i hear from you sure so uh you know that's just uh, it's a marvelous thing but it's a scary thing and again we urge everybody set and setting make sure you're with somebody who really loves you okay <laughs> before you enter into this field especially if you're younger um but uh obviously this is you know ramdas and uh, all of us back in the day this was what introduced us to that thing that we call um higher consciousness consciousness itself so yeah so back to the i and the self uh I think, you know, this thing that is in the in the magazine that I just read about the great thing about Buddhism is it gives you that um, that uh, field of perception platform from which to really be able to clear out yeah. the identification with that, and I called it illusory self. Yeah, yeah, and and that seems like a really important thing to do, and it's I guess to me it's kind of like a maturation process, like human development. Mm. Um, I guess because I hang out with a lot of people who are practicing, I sort of forget how important that is as a first step. Um, Mm. But then the thing I see a lot more frequently is when people, you know, swing too far toward clearing out the self and sort of, disengage from their lives or think spiritual spirituality is this sort of transcendent super space somewhere right and then have really struggle and i and i and i did as well you know certain phases in my practice to to come back in to life you know to see that you know like like you're saying color rinpoche's teaching you know that there's nothing less profound or spiritual about you know, cleaning the dishes, right. you know, or, you know, picking up my son from daycare, mm-hmm. then sitting on a cushion and doing some sort of contemplative technique. Yeah. Um, there's nothing inherently better about that situation from a certain standpoint, you know, in terms of what's being offered. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, on the one hand, I think that's sort of quote unquote advanced practice, but on the other hand, it's also always the case. It's day-to-day, absolute day-to-day, be-here-now practice, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I 
I have always remembered that those teachings that I got from Kalu Rinpoche as being probably some of the most important transmission uh, that I ever got because I had such naive naivete about the spiritual path. I mean, I was young and, uh, you know, just learning all, all this stuff, but to this day that has stayed with me, absolutely stayed with me. And so I, I really think that it's so important to integrate the practice side of it, not just when, as you just said, not just when you're sitting on your cushion, but when, when you're acting day to day and, and following whatever your path may be. And that's why, and, and we did, uh, I'm happy, uh, the other night, so we do kirtan, you know, that's a major practice chant mm. uh, from it's our a lovely tradition. Practice. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I'm glad you came, and Vince came the other night, it was the first time he'd been with us doing that. Um, and I just think that there's a way in which that kind of practice um, gets, it, it's, it transcends the mental formulations you're just, it's no different than a meditative, it's the same, it is a meditative practice, but there's a way in which the music and the doing of it yourself brings you into a, a, an opening place, you know, that connects you with, with the heart place. And that's why, that's what I've been trying to say actually about what we got from Neem Karoli Baba was a combination when he, you know, he urged our foundation in meditative practice. He urged our... I mean, so many of us now that are part of that tradition really have taken a lot of Tibetan teachings, you know, and are, a couple of them are, you know, like Danny Goldman is very close to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And um, I think that there is a way to really look at the combination of heart practice and, uh, and, and uh, basic meditative practice and then, of course, using, you know, reading where you can really learn uh, mindfulness and so on and so forth. I think that, you know that's a clear thing. And the other thing, though, that I wanted to, that I I saw in one of the other articles in this uh, publication, which I loved, was about happiness. Mm -hmm. What about happiness? Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, is, is this uh, uh, this author went and um, did some Zen practice and 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 uh, the the Zen uh, I guess one of the monks said, it doesn't really matter how happy we are. Right? And, uh, and, and he said, throughout my childhood and adolescence, my mother often asked, why can't you ever be con content? My whole life I've been striving to manipulate my experience in order to achieve some s set of conditions, some mm. state of mind that always eluded me. Now I felt I could let go of that. I remember looking at the face of the monk and seeing through the pines the white gleam of a volcanic peak that suddenly looked as though it was about to explode with happiness. Mm. And um, mm. again, this is another little story of Maharaji, but um, I think this is really important because there's the there's a kind of happiness that's um, it's without the kind of depth of reality. And it's something in the West that's all we want. You know, is money going to make you happy? Is, uh, you know, your partner going to make you happy? Is your work going to make you happy? And that's not the kind of happiness. I think this happiness is more of a deep contentment with what is. And um, I was in India, and my, my father came to visit my brother and I. And uh, Maharaji said to him, why did you come here? What'd you come to India for? He said, "Well, I, w I wanted to see my sons, see how they were doing." He said, "How are they doing?" My father said, "Well, they seem to be happy." And Maharaji said, "Happiness is everything." And I got that in that moment, meaning not the superficial happiness which we're all aware of and have strived for our whole lives, but more about contentment, mm. a deep contentment with, with the, with the moment. Yeah. What, what's been your experience in that, in, in your life and, and your practice? Well, um, the first thought that came to mind is kind of, a, in terms of the distinction that you're making, you know, um, more of a conceptual framework that I found helpful. I talk about my experience too, but mm. um, Shinzen Young, who's an American oh, yeah. Dharma teacher, mm. he has a good 
good phrase and good distinction there, which is there's the happiness dependent on conditions and happiness independent of mm, conditions. Mm, that's good. And yeah. you're talking, I think you're talking, yeah. pointing to the happiness independent. Independent conditions. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and, the, and the, the interesting thing is how we're seeking to become, we're seeking to get more happiness that's contingent on conditions, thinking that's going to give us the independent happiness, you know, conflating the two and thinking that they're the same. Yeah. You know, yeah. and... So, like, in my experience uh, with practice, it really did help me start to get the difference um, between those two and to see that there was something that was fundamentally okay, even when, like, my whole, you know, ego structure was dissolving and I was, you know, and there's freaking out and terror and, mm. you know, total groundlessness. Like, even that was okay, you know, on some level. You know, it's all groundless. So there's nothing actually to be worried about <laughs> since it's all groundless anyway. Yeah, right. Um, and right. so something about that, you know, which is hard to put into words, um, but it's sort of a glimpse of, of a kind of happiness that's not, it's not like not a thing or an experience, but it's just like, it's just the field of experience just doing what it does mm. um, and being okay with what it is. Because um, like, what could it, what else could it be? Right. And something like that, um, and so for me, realizing that was like such a, I was like, oh my God, that's like, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been seeking for, you know, this whole time. And then, but, but at the same time, it's like, there's, it's so, so damn simple and so hard to put into words. And it's not like, a, like I, I couldn't like wear it around as a badge, you know, like, <laughs> you know, or like get, I, it, it didn't give me anything, you know particularly right <laughs> except a certain kind of like deep existential you know like okayness yeah. um and so you mm. know it's like i i i've noticed that, that there is a, a sort of process of integration you know that i still feel like i'm in you know of um of sort of um uh, being okay you know not knowing and um mm. perfect yeah yeah being okay with not knowing yeah that's real happiness that's real deep contentment you know to get to that place uh, yeah yeah that's 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 well 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 said this trip you had I didn't, you know, we've never really talked about it, I guess, not even uh, outside of <laughs> talking about it in front of thousands of people. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Is a, a game changer, I would say. I mean, not to be too dramatic about it. But no, but I mean, it, 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 was, it was a game changer because part of what it made me realize is like the whole time I'd been meditating, I had been subtly trying to control my experience with meditation. Like there was some part of what I was learning in those skills of like noticing and being present with and noting and feeling and like all the skills, I was still using them to subtly try to like deal and cope yeah. with experience, even though they brought a lot of freedom and happiness and I touched into that independent of conditions thing. Like this experience just, it ripped all of that away from me and it sort of showed me that like I really wasn't in control mm. and that was sort of terrifying from a certain point of view. Um, but it really, at the, after that, I really like, I was stripped of this idea that I, that like, that meditation was going to get me something, mm. you know, <laughs> beautiful. And so I, I didn't really meditate a whole lot after that <laughs> actually it's taken me years to start, come back into yeah. like right. doing a formal practice. Yeah. But it's probably way more real meaning, you know, it's not, uh, at the less of the mind stuff of why am i doing this i mean it's taken me years too i don't i just sit down there i don't oh yeah i'm not feeling it or shit that didn't do so good yesterday god i was just thinking about shit the whole time you know i never think about any of that it's just a doing mm. you know and that took a long time so getting yeah you know, i don't know if i had that at 34 whatever but maybe i, I don't remember <laughs> <laughs> that's the other beauty um yeah, being okay with not knowing. 
to me is uh, that's a brass ring. That's a big brass ring. That's amazing. Um, there was there was something else. Yeah, there's something else that I, I read in another one of these publications actually that um, never really I've never really talked about it on a on a podcast maybe peripherally, but uh, it's uh, this thing is called the spirit of reverence, and um, he talks about. His uh, this is another uh, Chinese Chan Zen teacher in who said to him in between your rounds of meditation practice bowing. This is a little bit like what I've been talking about the combination of a you know your meditative practice Buddhist meditative practice um, using intellect to help understand and and move forward and uh, and then the heart practices. Mm. Um, in between your rounds of meditation, practice bowing, hmm. offering incense, and making certain cer uh, cir circumnambulations. If you have no spirit of reverence, hmm. no feeling of awe for all that lies beyond the confines of that miserably circums circumscribed illusion you suppose to be your, quote-unquote, me, you will make no progress. Why? Because when your practice improves, you will reflect, I did better in my meditation just now. And by so thinking, fall back to the lowest level of ignorance, owing to the constant inflation of your devilish eye. <laughs> Isn't that great? This is by, actually, John Blowfield, who's a, a very well-known uh, teacher. And um, it made this, this made me think, of situations that I had been in. Um, we have a, a, right now, Vince is looking at uh, one of my dogs going, what do you want? He, she's she's part of this little... Uh, <laughs> this she little wa she wants to jump on the mic, I yeah. think, <laughs> and contribute. <laughs> Her name is Leela, by the way. Oh, beautiful. Mm. The dance. She's the dance. Um, yeah, many, many people, of course... Uh, make fun of the idea that you would just the bowing down before another human being and um, I have had this experience where I you know and I've told you this before I might have mentioned it in the podcast I did with you or in the last podcast we mm. did and I've certainly mentioned it many times here that my first experience in India with a guru was this bowing down and act of reverence and just flipped me out. I couldn't do it. I mean, I did it, but I was just like, what the, you know. And, and then my experience I had meeting Neem Karoli Baba the first time, there was no thought. Hmm. It was like, shit, you ju I just got down on the ground because I was completely overwhelmed by the presence of that which we cannot name, right? Mm. That, to me, is the only um, nomenclature I can put to this, you know, saying guru, God, you know, holy man, all of it, you know, it's all constructs that I could never get with. When From that time when I was a kid, I could never get with it. Just the presence of what is that we could not name. And in fact, one of the best um, stories I have recently, I was in the middle of a jungle with uh, an amazing, amazing yogi, Baba. And we were doing a lot of chanting and so on. And uh, a guy came, a young guy, he was like 20 years old. He came and he played drums. Well, and I was doing some chanting. He was fantastic. Hmm. I mean... He was extraordinary. I mean, I was so happy I had somebody like him playing with me, you know. And uh, anyhow, so uh, everybody was leaving, and he came to say goodbye, and he came with his friend. His friend said to the Baba, you know, this guy didn't want to come here. He had no desire to come here and meet you. So Baba goes, why not? Well, you know, what was the deal? And... uh he said, how did I know I'd be in the presence of the divine? How did I know? 
and I just thought, right. This, he had a spontaneous reaction to you could only be reverent in front of such a thing. You know? And this isn't you know, enlightened, not enlightened, but obviously this being was very well placed in that thing that we cannot name mm. at the very least. Mm. And so he, uh, he, he, this is a natural to me outflow that we have and it doesn't have to be in front of a being. It, it's a, it's a, your experience very much was being in the, there's a reverence that I can hear in your voice, not just that one, but through the four uh, experiences that you had with psilocybin, right? Related to the uh, being in this practice with the, the people that you did it with and so on. Mm-hmm. Would you not say that's true? Would you have used that word uh in relation to this experience yeah i think so i think there was a feeling of of reverence to the to the mystery mm. in terms of what we were exploring you know and 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 sort of having good enough sense to know that we weren't we didn't know what was going to happen mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was a feeling of kind of like reverence um trepidation too you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like Ah, uh, this mm-hmm. is a little scary. I mean, the mystery is like, yeah, like I feel a sense of reverence, but also a sense of like healthy fear. You know? yeah. Like, like this is I'm dealing with forces that are greater, you mm. know, and that, yeah, you know, don't don't necessarily uh, care about what what I I think are important mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> they but, care about kind of ripping that shroud off. Yeah, that's what they care about. <laughs> There isn't anything else. I mean, my and there's the reverence. It's like okay, uh, yeah, I'm here. Yes, 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 exactly. And that's exactly what happened to us with this particular being, Neem Karoli Baba in India. Interesting. He was like exactly. A, he was like a living psychedelic. Yeah, a living psychedelic. And Ramdas has said, the fact that I took all those psychedelics before I went to India and met this being, prepared me for being able to uh, absorb the absorbed it in a way that I don't think I could have had I not had. And again, we're not endorsing psychedelics, but we are in reverence to their effectiveness. And Maharaji himself, Neem Karoli Baba said, good, very good uh, for first time. They allow you to have, well, you know what he said exactly? They allow you to have darshan, Right, be in the presence of Christ. He talked to us about Christ. Christ was because that's what we know in the West, right? He was Jewish too, so you know, for all all of us, a lot of us were Jews, <laughs> and then it came there that allowed us to have darshan. Okay, be in the presence for a few hours, and then he said you have to leave. Ultimately, best to feed people, serve people. That will get you high. I mean, he didn't say get you high, but um, so. So there is uh, a certainly an initial, and as you experienced, uh, unraveling and connectivity to that which we can't name the mystery, and then uh, and 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 then you got hammered, <laughs> big time, right? And we, in that sense, we got hammered by him day to day, you know, just shattering mind stuff, mm. you know. And uh, it, the mirror was pretty horrible, seeing who, you know, the manifestation mm. of who we weren't was on a day-to-day basis hard to bear oh yeah and it uh yeah so it was pretty interesting but uh Mm. but the i think it's really important reverence Mm. for for that mystery reverence for the not knowing is as important as the reverence of this guy this drummer sitting in front of this baba and going how did i know i'd be in front of the divine presence you know how did i know and I think that that um, innocence and, you know, that's what Christ said. Should we, you have to be like a child to, to really know God. And I think that's uh, part of that uh, reverence. What do you think? Got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've exhausted uh, th- words. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I think we have too. Yeah. Well, it's a podcast. We could sit in silence, which we <laughs> probably should do too. Um, but thank you, and uh, really appreciate you coming over here. 
Yeah. And uh, sharing space and time. Thank you for the chai, too. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. delicious chai. Okay, now that everybody, dogs <laughs> are know, attacking him, it's, it's over <laughs> now. Know, know How do you know it's over? <laughs> we're still talking. Oh, God. They can feel it. They can <laughs> feel it. <laughs> uh, well, this is Mind Rolling and the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and check it all out. And thank you, Vincent. And, <laughs> thank uh, you. Everybody, check out BuddhistGeeks.com. And uh, and check out uh, the uh, podcast that uh, Vince has up there. And let's do this again. Love to. See you next week, everybody. Namaste. Namaste.